There are times where it feels like our story is going really well. We're really excited with it. It's going very successfully. We, the, the, story is, the story being told is the story we wanted to be told. And then there are other times we're a little bit less sure about who's telling this story. And then there are some times where we're really not sure how this story is going to end. And we are looking at the end of the story of Nehemiah today. We started this series all the way back in September, and we began actually with the climax of the book, which is in chapter 12. And basically, the short, long story short, God's people had been punished for their rebellion against God, and he had sent them out of the land, and he'd allowed their capital city and their temple where they worshipped God to be destroyed. After 70 years of punishment and rest for the land, God allowed people to begin to return and to begin to rebuild. And Nehemiah is part of that process. And when they finish the rebuilding of the city, they're just so excited and so grateful to God for what he's done. And so they have these huge worship celebrations. And as part of that, as Nathaniel read to us last week, they rededicated themselves to God. They made a covenant with him. They made promises to him about how they were going to live now in this new time. They promised to walk in God's law. They promised to not bind themselves in marriage to the peoples of the lands around them who worshipped other gods. They promised to keep the Sabbath day as holy and do no work on it. They promised to provide for the upkeep of the temple, which is where they worshipped God, and they were going to pay for the people who worked there and bring all the sacrifices uh, that were the way in which they uh, worshipped God. They said they were going to do all that. Nathaniel was reading those things to us last week. And then they have this final celebration, and it says in chapter 12, one of my favourite lines in almost the whole Bible, I think, is that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And I just love that because there's something so true and real and prophetic about that, that when God's people love him and serve him and worship him, the whole world hears about it. It's great. So they all lived happily ever after. No. No, they didn't. Chapter 12 of Nehemiah is a good place to end a book if you're trying to tell a nice story. But that is not what God is trying to do. God isn't interested in that. And so it gives us chapter 13, unlucky for all of them. And it takes place years after all those excited promises were made. Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem for several years and then he returns to see how things are going and the people have broken every promise they made. Every one of them. Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Now Tobiah is one of the enemies of the entire rebuilding project. He's in chapter 2, he's awful and hang on, this guy who's a priest is related to him and then this guy prepares for Tobiah a large chamber in the temple where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. So all that stuff that was meant to be in the house of God for worship is cleared out so this guy who hates God and his people can have a house there. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, each to his field. Verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, 
and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon and Moab and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and couldn't speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. Verse 28, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, that guy again, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat is with Tobiah, the other guy who's the main enemy of God's people at this time, and he has married into the high priest's family. Therefore, Nehemiah says, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Nehemiah is furious about this unfaithfulness and he works really hard to fix it all over again. And he succeeded to an extent because God's people did retain their identity in the centuries to come. But the sense of anticlimax in this story is unmistakable. Jerusalem is not the joy of the whole earth as it was meant to be, as God intended it to be. It was meant to shine the light of God's goodness on all nations, and it was not doing that. And this is how the story of Nehemiah, it's how the story of the Old Testament as a whole ends, with this sense of, oh no, well that, that doesn't look right, that, what has gone wrong? And the story of our lives may be similar to that. We have moments of excitement, moments of breakthrough, moments of success. Those of us who are following Jesus here already, we get baptised. We have big ambitions, we have good intentions, we make New Year's resolutions which we pray about. But then frustration, disappointment, compromise, failure, disaster... Whatever the reasons for these, however much there may or may not be entirely our fault, this is how life goes for all of us. Can we escape this? Can we, can we escape this fate? Is there a better story? Is there a story which doesn't go wrong, which doesn't start really well, but just gradually, slowly, suddenly, and then just get worse and worse? Is there any way we can escape from that? Is there a story that can be told that doesn't require us to pretend that everything is okay? Is there a story which isn't defined by the wrongs that are done to us and those that we do to others? Is there a story in which sin and death don't win? Yes, there is. Merry Christmas. There are so many ways that we could explore the victory of Jesus but let's just look at what he did that the people in the story of Nehemiah couldn't do, didn't do, wouldn't do. They didn't obey God's word. Jesus is God's word. He isn't uh, just really good. He isn't just really good at keeping it. He isn't just perfect at keeping it. He is it. He embodies all of the will and the truth of God. And he goes way beyond any kind of like just nitpicking law keeping. Or oh, be careful about that, be careful about that. No, he shows how the fullness of the law is love and faithfulness. 
He shows what the law is all about. He does that perfectly. They neglect the temple and its staff and the sacrifices that they're meant to make. He is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the meeting place of heaven and earth. And then Jesus becomes that. The temple is just a sign of who Jesus is. He is that meeting place of God and man. And his death is the sacrifice which all the sacrifices that ever took place in that temple were only ever signs of. Hebrews 10 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And he establishes true worship of God, which is in spirit and in truth. And the glorious presence of God can now be experienced by any person to whom Jesus gives his Holy Spirit. They dishonor the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He does good on it. He restores wholeness and joy to people through healing and through teaching so that they can keep it as it's meant to be kept, this wonderful moment of celebration. He makes that happen. And not only this, but like God in the creation account, he does his great work of recreation in the Easter week and he dies on Friday, the last day of the week, the penultimate day of the week, and then on the next day, the Sabbath day, what's he doing? He's resting in the grave. And then on the first day of the new week and the rest of history, he rises to new life. The people of Israel marry other nations and they become like those other nations. They lose their distinctiveness and their faithfulness. Jesus is the only faithful person who has ever lived. He is faultless on all counts. Even his enemies can't find anything that he does wrong. And he brings the nations to himself and he makes them like him by the power of his Holy Spirit. When there are things that are unclean, Jesus comes to them and he doesn't get infected, he makes them clean. Whatever your faults, whatever has happened to you, whatever you have done wrong, Jesus is your hope. He doesn't just have some ideas. He has told a better story. He has written a better story. And he wants to bring you in to that better story. He has done it perfectly himself. And now he is working it in all who put their trust in him to bring it to its eternal happy ending. Which is great news. It's the best news. But how do we hear that today if we belong to Jesus, we have his Holy Spirit in us, and yet we still feel, we still feel a bit compromised. We still feel a bit frustrated. We're a bit discouraged. We're, we're exhausted. Any or all or many of those things. And we're like, it doesn't feel like this story's going in the right direction. You're telling me it is, but it doesn't feel like that. How do we deal with that? I don't know about you, I'm really tired. Just really tired. It's, life is just hard. And when I'm, when I'm tired, I'm not as loving or as patient or as, as joyful as I, I want to be. And I imagine many of you are experiencing something along those lines at the moment as well because life is simply hard right now. I remember reading early in the pandemic someone saying they were sick of getting emails from people talking about these unprecedented and unusual times. They're like, I want to live in precedented and usual times, please. 
And of course, and absolutely, there is just so much more pressure and so much more hardness for so many people right now because of what's going on. But let's not pretend that everything was fine in like January or you know, December 2019. Let's not pretend that life was easy for everyone then or life was easy for us. There was more than enough going on already. That's why this thing is so hard now. It's like, I was full. Now you're giving me this as well. Belonging to Jesus, having him in your life doesn't isolate you from these things. And some Christians will tell you that it does. It's just not true. It doesn't isolate you. The Psalms give us songs about being sad and angry and sick of heart. The prophet Isaiah notes that even youths shall faint and be weary. Paul, great hero, talks about being afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Science and experience tell us we are finite beings. We need rest. We need refreshment. If you don't sleep out or eat and drink, you are going to stop. There's only so much pressure that any of us can cope with. Scripture agrees with this. It says that although we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we are also dust. We are jars of clay, Paul says. Not very spectacular and liable to crack. God knows this about you. And he doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't hold, he's not disappointed in you that there are cracks showing right now. He's not like, oh my goodness, I thought they were all going to do it by themselves. He doesn't think that way. Because he knows you. And the perfection that he requires, the reason that we're so stirred within us and so frustrated within us that we aren't doing everything as we should, that we aren't meeting the standards, even our own standards, let alone God, the reason we feel that tension because we're made to live in that way, God has, in Jesus, fulfilled all of that. He has done all of that on your behalf because you couldn't do it. Um, at our small group this week, uh, someone had a picture during worship of a person inside like a really large, dark wardrobe. And they were inside and it was shut and they were desperately kind of scrubbing it, trying to make it clean. And then suddenly the doors were thrown open and the cleansing light of God came in. The life you need is in Jesus and it will get you through the darkest of days and the drab ordinary night drab ordinariness of life as well. Jesus knows that you need it. He is happy to give it. He wants you to open the doors. He wants his light to flood in and fill you and change you and cleanse you. There are so many ways in which he can do this. I was like, which of them should we talk about? And then I decided to look at actually the things in what we've read. The things that Israel failed to do, that Jesus has done, he now gives to us as ways in which we can receive his life. Not to earn his favour, that's been done, but to receive his power. I want to commend them to you as ways in which God wants to give you grace. Some of them are going to be familiar. If you've been a Christian for a while, you'll be like, this again? Like, yes, this again. And I was thinking about this. I believe God wants to give some of you fresh faith 
for a familiar thing, something you've heard about before, you're like, really? And God's saying, yeah, I, need, I want you to partner with me in believing that this will impact you, that this will be a way in which I will bless you, grow you, keep you, enable you to keep going. We need to open the doors for his light to flood in and change us. We all need to eat. God has got food for us. Will we feast on the life-giving stuff that God sets before us or on the fake plastic food that's offered elsewhere? Let's look briefly at these four gifts, which is what they are. The first is the gift of God's word, the gift of scripture. This January is going to mark 20 years for me of daily Bible reading being a habit in my life. I'm not saying I read it, I've read it every single one of those days in the past 20 years, but it's definitely been most of them. And I remember I was in bed uh, on kind of middle of the morning, uh, a day early in January, and I was, I was ill, and I was, I was just despondent. I'd kind of given my life to God about 18 months before. Uh, I was 20 at that point, and I was just so excited of what it suddenly meant to know Jesus and to live for him. And I was just like, yes, let's go. This is amazing. And then 18 months later, I was tired. And there was sin in my life that kept tripping me up. And there was responsibilities which I'd never had to carry before. And they were starting to weigh me down. And there was just life in general. And the the risk at that moment is that when we feel those pressures, we just kind of drop out. By the grace of God, I I was sitting there, I literally remember where I was. And I suddenly looked over to my computer, which was on the far side of the room. And I thought, I need to read the Bible. I wonder if there's a Bible reading plan online. And 20 minutes later, because it was dial-up internet, I found one. (laughs) And I started reading. By the grace of God, I'm still reading. It didn't change everything, but it changed everything. I began to truly know who God was. I wasn't just hoping or wishing or even hearing from others as important as that is. I was seeing, and I was hearing from him directly. I was learning about his ways. I heard him speak to me. He spoke to me sometimes really dramatically, and he spoke to me other times just like, oh, just every time I open this book, you're opening your mouth and speaking to me. My relationship with him deepened. I learned to obey him. And that's where the blessing of God's word ultimately is found. And I want you to experience this too. And that's why we do reading God's word together every year. And it starts again this January and it could could change your life. And we were just kind of reviewing it and Dan was like, I think it'd be good if there was a bit more colour in it. And so I was like, deal, I can do that. Bit more colour. Didn't have enough time to put any more colour on the actual booklet. So I want to encourage you that you can colour this in yourself. (laughs) Any colour you like. There's a guide to reading the Bible, and then there are Bible readings for each day of the year. The way we do it is we read a chapter of the Old Testament and a chapter of the New Testament every weekday, and then at the weekends we read a psalm on each of the weekend days. Uh, I found that means that when you've missed two days... You, you can get back on. So when I did the first time, I'm reading the whole Bible a year, it means four chapters a day. If I missed a couple of days, I was like, oh my goodness. I need to like clear my day to kind of get caught, back, caught up. If you're still thinking, that, man, two chapters a day, I'm not sure I've ever done anything like that. Okay, we'll just go with the New Testament to start with. It will do you good. 
And, and we call it reading God's Word together, not just because we're all reading the same thing, but so that we can actually connect with one another, talk to each other about this. So just speak to other Christians, maybe people in your small group or others you know in church. You're like, Let's, why don't we do this together? And just keep sharing what we're learning, what we're seeing, what we're totally confused by. And there are paper copies, as I say, which you can colour in um, on the Connect desk and also by the, the main entrance and exit as well. I'd love for you to grab one of these today. Um, they also have, uh, that, so that web address links to a page that we've put together. Where we've filled it with like resources for understanding, believing, and obeying God's word. And I've found them all over the place and brought them all together. So even if you're not doing this plan, there is stuff there that will help you. We've even put together like book by book uh, guides to each uh, books of the Bible as we go through. My experience is that reading the Bible on a daily basis, sometimes like getting a shot of adrenaline. You're like, whoa, my goodness, I've never seen that before. Other times, it's like taking a daily vitamin tablet. You're like, uh-huh, did me good. Either way, it will do you good. The second thing is, is the church. James 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If the tent and the temple in the Old Testament were known as the meeting place, how much more is the church now that there is no barrier between us and God? The tent and the temple, only certain people could get to a certain distance into it, and that's, that was as far as they could get to meet with God. We now come right into the heart of heaven, and we do that as we gather together. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that is, of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. These things happen as we worship together. Now, we can now worship Jesus at any and every time. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But it is always God's intention that his people gather together to praise him. He has particular gifts and blessings to give us at these times, which we can't have by ourselves, we don't have by ourselves. He wants us to bless and care and serve one another. These things do us good. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So again, the implication there is that we need stirring up to love. We need stirring up to do good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's God's will for you to do this, to be part of a gathered people, to come again and again and again, to come, I'm going to say it, every week. Regular church attendance has slipped for you because of pandemic pressures, you just got into new habits, new rhythms. I want to say to you, you need to resolve to change that. If it means radical decisions, so be it. I know that not every time you come here, it feels like God is doing you good. But he is. And I want to encourage you to have fresh faith for that today. That as you serve... As you chat, as you bump into people, as you sing songs that you wouldn't have chosen, as you hear people preach the word, as spiritual gifts are given, as we hear testimonies of how God transformed lives and as we display to the whole world that he is real and that we love him, you will have grace given to you. I'm not going to say too much about uh, giving, which was also part of what um, Israel neglected to do, but God's word describes giving as a grace that does us good, not a burden that leaves us poorer. I think often we're like, oh, giving, oh no, I'll have less. God says, no, no, 
Just try me. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So that Christmas offering, it's not just that those are two great things to give to, it's that God wants you to lend to him. Malachi, the prophet, was ministering around the same time as Nehemiah. And God said through him, bring the full tithe, that was the way in which they gave, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, says God, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Wouldn't you at least like to see if those promises are true? Our Christmas offering is a great way to start this. Regular giving to the church is a great way to continue it, as, long, as well as being generous in other ways too. Thirdly, Sabbath. Sabbath is a time of rest and rejoicing. It is a moment when we bask in what Jesus has done and realize that it's not all down to us. There's this pressure that builds up in us doesn't it? All of us. We feel it internally and there's plenty of it externally as well. This pressure to, to strive, to perform, to achieve, to be accepted, whatever it is for you. There's a the thing you're like, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And if you have a Sabbath rest, that pressure just gets punctured because you stop trying. And you just let God be the one who's doing it. I think you will be helped in your experience of this if you treat one day in the week as, as different to the others. Now, the Bible is very happy to have to be an ambivalence about that, but that's been my experience. And Sunday with its worship service is a great time for that to happen because you may have forgotten during the week. And then we come here and we're like, oh, yes. Yeah, he is really good. Oh, yeah, he is wonderfully doing all these things in other people's lives. I'm stirred in that. That's wonderful. So there's a corporate aspect to this. Then for myself, I like, to, I like to switch off all the usual noise. So to-do lists, no. The news, no. Social media, definitely no. If I can read something good, just listen to some good music. Um, if I can go for a bike ride, it just does me physically good. If we as a family can do something that is fun and beautiful rather than necessary and urgent, then in the midst of all of these things, I can talk to God about them and thank him for it for them. I'm not rushing to get all this stuff done. I'm just receiving what he's giving. I spoke about this in more detail a couple of years ago, and I'll put the link for it in the small group notes. But it's, there's something for, I mean, don't you just feel hassled at the moment? Uh, some of you are going to look forward to Christmas. You're like, yes, arrest. And even in the back of your mind, you're like, really? Our Sabbath is here for you. Fourth and final thing, company, good company. So Nehemiah, this needs explaining, Nehemiah's horror at Jews marrying people from other nations can sound like terrible racism in our ears if we don't understand what's really going on. So, to be really clear, marriages between people of different cultures can be especially beautiful. And God had always welcomed people from other lands who believed in him, who came to him. So Ruth from Moab, which is one of the nations listed in Nehemiah, she's the ultimate example of this. She sees God and she says, I want to belong to Jesus. And she marries in, she doesn't belong to Jesus because she doesn't know who he is, she's from the Old Testament, but she wants to be part of the people of God. And she marries into the people of God and she actually becomes the ancestor of one of Israel's greatest heroes, King David, and then Jesus himself. 
So there is a way in which people by faith step into the people of God in the Old Testament, even if they're not part of the, the, the ethnic people of God. But that isn't what's happening in Nehemiah. These marriages were less about faith and love and much more about making connections with the surrounding people, about getting influence and prosperity, about being in with the in crowd. Nehemiah saw that rather than the people of God influencing all those other people, those other people were influencing the people of God and making them turn away from God. So the application here for us is, who is influencing you? Paul puts it bluntly, bad company corrupts good morals. He's the Apostle Paul. He's filled with the Spirit. And he says, you need to watch out who you hang out with. Most of the messages that you are getting are coming from people, either people you know in person or the media you consume or people you're following or whatever, are negative, skeptical, unhealthy, perverse, godless, hopeless, consumerist, raging, selfish. If that's the general tone... I don't think you can survive not being impacted by that. I can't. The Apostle Paul wouldn't. We need people around us, people close to us, who will help us remember God's goodness when we're forgetful, who will share our burdens when we're feeling overwhelmed, who can teach us in word and deed what it is to follow Jesus, who have gifts and abilities and opportunities which we don't have but we need who are different to us and therefore open up to us entire areas of the life of God that we wouldn't otherwise know about. And we need to be those people for other people too. So small group is such a great place for this to start because you are sharing life with people and as you get to know some of them, particularly might get, develop deeper friendships with them. This isn't about isolating ourselves from the rest of the world. It's about making sure that the key influences in our life have the life of Jesus in them so that the life of Jesus will be in us and we are then able to influence those around us who don't yet have it for good. I was thinking about this. I think for some of you, maybe you're either going home for Christmas or you're visiting people for Christmas and and the contrast, you're going to notice it. Maybe uh, you've become a Christian and, and you're used to being a Christian here and you're going to go home and maybe family member, maybe your dad, uh, maybe someone else is going to be like, what? And uh, or you're just going to go back to a group, the people you run with at home or elsewhere, and the, it's just, there's none of them who are believers and they're just going to encourage you in old ways of living. And I think you need, there's an appointment you need to make with someone Either there's like a person back home or a person here or something like that where you need to say, I need to talk to you at some point. In fact, not at some point, at this point. Let's make this date. Ask me how it's going. Ask me how that went. Because if you just think, I'll be fine, I don't think you're going to be. And you need to be able to speak to someone else and for them to speak the life of God into you at that moment. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe this is the only time in the week when you're in Edinburgh that you have any good influence in your life. God's saying you need more of that. So there are four ways in which God wants to bless us and do us good. He wants us to hear his word and obey it. He wants us to worship him together. He wants us to rest. And he wants us to have good influences in our life. Jesus has done all these things perfectly for us. He he just wants to give us the goodness of them, that he's one. They don't earn his love, but he has chosen to use these for our good.
And he's inviting you today to believe him for that so that your story doesn't end in anticlimax or disappointment, but that it ends with the people of God in eternity, in joy forever. That's what he has for you. Take hold of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are writing stories in the lives of all those who are, who are seeking you, who are wanting to follow you. Thank you. As uh, Jan's testified today, actually, you're even writing stories even when we don't know you are. But Lord, for those of us who are now putting our trust in you, who are saying we want to follow you, please, Lord, open these doors. Flood us with your light. Lord, we've chewed on plastic food that promised us so much and has delivered less than nothing. Help us, please, to feast on these life-giving grace gifts of your word, of your people, of your rest. Lord, I pray right now for people who think, I need more of that in my life. Or people who think, I've given up on thinking that's going to help. I want to pray right now for moments of faith where decisions are going to be made. I never make it through past February when I'm reading the Bible. No, now believe God that this is the year when that changes. I'm just so, I, I never have decent chats with people who love Jesus. Believe God that this can be the time when that changes. I'm always so busy. There's always so much noise. Believe God that you can cut that out and receive his grace instead. You know, one in three, one in, you know, maybe one in two if I'm lucky, I'll come to church. No, believe God that there is grace and goodness here for you week after week. Whatever that decision is, Lord Jesus, we are relying on you. We are resting in you. We are believing that you will give us the life that you alone have. We ask that you would do this, that we would be with you and that you would be glorified. Amen. Amen. God bless you.